It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. almost here. Chester is uh, got his turtleneck sweater on. He says that he's getting ready for the fall. He says it's cold outside. Actually, it's not that cold outside yet, but Chester gets cold, so he looks very, very dashing in the turtleneck sweater, I must say, with the herringbone jacket, with the patches on the elbows. Nice, nice look. Maybe I'll get you one of those tweed caps. He doesn't want a cap. Glad to have you aboard. Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the show where we play old-time radio shows that we actually remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers. But everybody is welcome. And along the way, we're going to share some memories and some stories and listen to some music from our era. Good lineup tonight. We have a episode of Philip Marlowe, we have the Jack Benny Show, and we have an episode of Gunsmoke that is really going to warm your heart. Uh, a couple very lovable, memorable characters on this episode of Gunsmoke, so uh, that's something to look forward to at the end of the show. So you get yourself comfortable and get settled in because we're going to get started in just a minute.
as we usually do each week, we are going to start things off with a little black and white. A little radio noir. We're going back to the streets of Los Angeles from 1949. And we're going to follow that great detective, Philip Marlowe, as he tries to solve the case of the dancing hands. This one involves a set of twins, identical twins. Always love stories that involve identical twins because there's always an effort to uh, give you some misdirection. And I think you might find that true here tonight. Gerald Moore is very good in this episode. Also, Vivi Janice. We have Lou Krugman. We have Ed Bagley. We have Paul Fries. And we have a... Uh, actor that you don't hear much from or didn't hear much from by the name of um, Bert Holland. And Bert Holland doesn't have a lot of credits as far as films go, but he did star in Tarantula, which was a movie that just scared the bejabbers out of me when I was a little kid. Remember, it was about, um, it was one of the first films like Godzilla and a number of others where this spider in the desert was affected by radioactive fallout and suddenly grew to like the size of a mountain and was walking around uh, eating everybody out in the desert. I remember Leo G. Carroll was in it, John Agar, who was the, the king of the B-horror movies from the 50s. He was in it. But Tarantula, oh boy. But Bert Howard was in this, and I don't, um, I don't remember him. Did I say Bert? I mean Bert Holland. I, I don't remember the part he played. He was also in the Dragnet movie back in the 50s. So, you know, he had a resume. He, he died fairly young. He was only, I think, in his late 50s. Bert Holland. So here we go. We're going back to March 19th, 1949. The Case of the Dancing Hands on Philip Marlowe. were born at the same hour on the same day of the same parents, and they were identical in beauty and talent. Only one was deadly, but the other was not. And I couldn't tell which was which until I found a green purse, a fresh corpse, and a pair of dancing hands. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. With Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Dancing Hands. The telegram I found stuck in the mail slot when I got back to my office after a long and roundabout day read. Enclosed, find a $50 money order. I want you to investigate a man. A table is reserved for you at the saddle club where I work. Come in time for the second show at 11, important. It was signed, Beth Tyler. So at a quarter to 11, with 50 bucks worth of inspiration behind me, I drove over the Coenga Freeway and out Ventura to the Saddle Club, which pretended to be old English by showing its beams through a flagstone facade. I went in the carefully rough-hewn oak door, and even before my eyes became adjusted to the cozy lack of candle power inside, Neil Redmond, owner and operator of the place, glided toward me. 
sporting his genial host smile, which tonight was even more forced than usual. How are you, Marlowe? It's been a long time. Business a pleasure, Phil. It's always a pleasure to come to the Saddle Club, Neil. I've even got a reservation. You know my food better than that, Marlowe. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just don't let it get rough, will you? Come on, I'll find your table out front. I want you to see this show. A pair of twins in a twin piano act that's sensational. Yeah? Edie and Beth Tyler. Oh, here, how's this? Fine. Incidentally, uh, Edie will be the one on the left. Well, if they're twins, what's the difference? Funny. Edie may be Mrs. Redmond one of these days. Oh. Mrs. Redmond, but you are wanted on the phone, sir. Uh, get the number, George, and I'll call back. This gentleman said you would talk to him, sir. It is uh, Mr. Paul Cedar. Paul Cedar. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Marlowe. Uh, this is important. Redmond reacted to the name Cedar like a punch in the nose. But I figured that was none of my business, which was more than I could say for a flabby, dull-faced character at the next table who followed the nightclub owner all the way out of the room with a pair of watery red eyes, which he deliberately avoided turning in my direction. But at that point, an MC stepped out on the stage, and so I stopped working about Flabby in favor of the first look at my client. The Saddle Club is... ...its second show of the evening, featuring the incomparable piano stylist, Edie and Beth in Dancing Hands. Here they are, ladies and gentlemen, bring them up. Curtains parted on a stage set with an oversized full-length mirror which reflected a grand piano, a black vase of yellow flowers and a tall brunette with a wry crisp waistline who touched up a piled-high hairdo, put on a pair of long black gloves, checked her hemline and sat down at the piano. And she ran through an involved arpeggio while her reflection in the mirror looked on in admiration. It was an old but cute routine and the illusion was perfect because the Tyler twins were practically identical. I took another look at Flabby, whose face was pushed up in a nasty leer. He stood up, dropped a cigarette into his drink, and tossed a crumpled bill down on the table, just as the lights went out for the trick part of the act. On the dark stage, two pairs of purple hands danced over two glowing silver keyboards. It would have been good, except that the pair of hands on the right, which belonged to Beth, suddenly stopped in midair and hit blue notes like a nine-year-old at her first recital. When the lights came up again, my client's face was as white as middle C. And the flabby character oozing a victorious smile was on his way to the door. Well, they wrapped it up fast after that. And Beth ran into the wings, leaving Edie to take the bow alone. The band took over in a hurry and brought things down to normal. So as couples moved out of the dance floor and George the waiter headed to my table, I sat back and waited for that message from my client. Here you are, sir. Compliments of the house. Oh, thanks. Any message with this? No, sir. Just that Mr. Redman had to leave. Oh, thanks, George. I sipped the double scotch and wondered if I should take the initiative and contact my client. When the message I'd been waiting for came, good and loud. I jumped up, shoved my way through the gaping dancers to the dressing room hallway behind the stage. A gang of club personnel was bunched in front of a door, obviously locked, labeled Edie and Beth Tyler. Hey, what's the matter? It's one of the twins. She's screaming. We got to get in. That door's locked. Break it down. Get out of the way. It's Edie. It's Edie. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold it. She's all right. Clear out and give her a chance. Come on. Outside, everybody. Beat it. That means you too. Come on. Out. Here, Miss Tyler. Take it easy. You're all right now. Come on. Sit down. Tell me what happened. I don't know for sure. I was worried about Beth. I came back and didn't see her anywhere. And I heard a noise in here. It was dark. I came in and someone grabbed me. A man? Yes. I don't know who it was. Mm -hmm. I screamed. He knocked me down. 
then locked the door and got out through the window there. Who are you? Oh, I'm Philip Marlowe, a private detective. Your sister hired me to investigate a guy. I was to meet her here after your number and find out about it. Any idea what's up? No, I can't imagine. But, gee, Beth has been terribly upset ever since last night. Oh? What happened last night? Well, for one thing, my purse was stolen. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't see why that should upset her. Gee, there was nothing in it but $12 in my makeup stuff. Where's Beth now, do you know? No. I haven't seen her since she ran off the stage. I'm not even sure she came in here. No, she was here all right. She dropped one of her gloves. You're still wearing both of yours. Where do you girls live? Maybe she went home. Well, Beth has a cottage out on Hazeltine. 4179. You don't live together? How come? Well, gee, Mr. Marlowe, just working with Beth is hard enough. She's so sarcastic. <laughs> okay, I'll wear my thick skin. Uh, one more thing, Miss Tyler. Do you happen to know where Neil went? Neil's gone? Mm-hmm. Gee, that's funny. He always stays till the place closes. Oh, he must be coming right back. I'll take a look. Then I'm going out to see your sister. Sarcasm at all. I spent ten minutes questioning the help on the whereabouts of the boss and got nothing but double talk for answers. So since I was still carrying Beth's glove around with me, I dropped it in my pocket and went outside to my car. I'd opened the door and slid far enough under the wheel so I couldn't back out before I realized that the dough-faced flab was already there on the seat. His right hand wrapped around something blunt and menacing in his sloppy jacket pocket. You better come on in. What are you doing in my car, blubber boy? Don't get sassy now, mister. And the name is Sippy. That's no improvement. That's no answer. All right. I, uh, saw you inside making with the big talk, so I says to myself, he's an interested party. I should look him up. Maybe we can do business together. All right, stay over there. What kind of business? I'm particular about the gutters I crawl in. It has to do with the twins inside there. You can get in touch with me later for further details. I got an angle, mister. You'll see when I leave. Yeah? When you tried to work that angle, you got to the wrong twin in the dressing room. Do you know that? I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, Sippy, where can I reach you? You'll find out if you really know what's up. <coughs> Don't try to follow me, though. I'll be seeing you. When Sippy slid out of the car and beat it, I made one move after him and then stopped cold. Because lying on the seat where he'd been sitting was a green leather handbag with the name Edie etched on it. I snapped it open. It had been stripped of everything but the scent of Amir and a smudged slip of paper that read Number 9 Arrow Motel, Lancashire Boulevard. So that was Sippy's address, and he had the stolen purse. But the why of all the commotion over 12 missing bucks was still the number one question mark. And I figured the best place for an answer to it was at Beth Tyler's. So I drove out to Hazeltine. But even before I stopped at number 4179, I heard the piano. I walked to the door and stood there a moment listening. I eased it open. Slipped inside. Soft, indirect lighting accented the figure of a girl at the piano. The little waves of iridescent crimson chased themselves over the smooth, satin gown as she played. Glossy, blue-black hair fell to her shoulders. The side of a burning cigarette sent a single plume of smoke into the still air. 
Just for a moment, I found it difficult to remember that she was my client. <clears throat> oh? You're, you're looking better, Beth. You're Philip Marlowe, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I dropped by to return your glove, among other things. Just put it there on the table with the other one. Where did you get it, Marlowe? In your dressing room at the club. Your sister tangled with an unidentified man who was hiding there after you left. While we're on that, why'd you shove off so fast? I was scared. How'd you know I'd find you? You're a detective. Remember? Mm-hmm. Look, if you want to burn up your retainer playing hide-and-seek, it's your business. Now, who's the guy you want me to check on? The flabby one who made you blow up tonight? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Why? Because I think my sweet twin sister is mixed up in something a little more serious than her usual scatterbrain escapades. Hmm. And the flabby guy is in on it because he has a green purse, right? How did you know that? He left it with me. Name is Sippy. He lives at the Arrow Motel, number nine. Knows something worthwhile about this business and he's anxious to sell it. All of which puts him a hop, skip, and a jump ahead of your detective... Now, tell me, why is everybody, including Neil Redmond, all wound up over one stolen purse? What's it all about, baby? I don't know, baby. Suppose you find out and tell me. Wouldn't have anything to do with the fact that Neil loves your sister and you love Neil, would it? Marlowe, I hired you to investigate a man, not to pry into my personal affairs. You'll get more for your money if I stop holding out on me. It's my money. Besides, I'm not holding out. Believe me. I'll try. Real hard. Well, as soon as I've got something, I'll call you. Where are you going now? Uh, my retainer entitles me to know, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. First to the club to find Redmond and get his side of it, and then I'll probably drop in on our chum, Sippy, at the Arrow Motel on Lancashire. Good. I'll uh, keep a light in the window for you. Oh, sweet. <laughs> also keep your door locked. From the inside, baby... As I drove down the dark, winding street toward Ventura Boulevard, I caught a flash in the rearview mirror of a station wagon behind me. It looked like a tail, so I opened up, but it stayed with me. When it swung out into the left lane to pass, it suddenly cut in front of me. I jammed on the brakes and the spotlight slashed at my eyes, and when my front wheel banged against the curb, I was already half out of the car. Stop right where you are, fella. Don't come one inch closer, I'll drop you. I switched off the spotlight and I saw a face the texture of a doormat over an embroidered purple shirt and orange tie. He had hand-tooled high-heeled boots on and was topped off by a ten-quart cream-colored Stetson. But the doormat face was grim and the silver-barreled cold pistol in his hand looked right at home. I followed you up here from the saddle club. I don't know what your game is or why you're messing around and what don't concern you, but... I aim to find out mighty quick, so start talking. Okay. First, I resent being crowded off the road. Second, I resent a spotlight in my face. And third, I don't like pistols pointed at my stomach. So cool off, Jesse James. You're wasting your time and mine. You got it wrong there, friend. Paul Cedar don't waste his time, and you're going to find that out. Paul Cedar? Huh? Yeah. Don't tell me you're all excited over a stolen purse with 12 bucks in it. $12? Yeah. Listen, clown, there's 30 grand missing somewhere between Redman and me, and I'm going to get it. 30000 Yeah. Redmond's a high roller, and that's okay with me. But he lost it fair and square in my joint over in Nevada, and I've been holding his markers much too long. So if I have to chalk that dough off to experience, it's going to be a pretty unpleasant experience for a certain party. Get me? Yeah, I get you. But you're shoving the wrong way, Longhorn. Somebody's trying to make a fool out of me, bright boy. And I don't stand for that. I'm liable to shove a lot of ways. And hard. So don't get underfoot. 
Uh, you're sure to get stepped on. So long, dude. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Dancing Hands. The Texan from Nevada galloped off in his trusty station wagon. I forgot all about Neil Redmond and headed instead for Sippy and his further details at the Arrow Motel on Lancashire, where Bungalow 9 turned out to be an all-alone green and white collection of clapboard that showed light, a half-open door, and nobody home to my knock. When I tried knuckles on wood again and still got only a faint echo for reply, I stepped inside. There in the center of an ivory-white throw rug and clamoring for attention like an only child at a family reunion was a wide and wet circle of red. From there, the ugly splotches that narrowed as they got farther away trailed off until, finally, in the next room, the path ended where I expected it to. The quiet form of Skippy, sprawled over an upset chair and holding his hands tight against the red on his left side. When I got to him, he was going fast. Thirty grand. A lot of dough. Didn't know I was... Shooting that high, and the, the twins. One, one, one what, Sippy? One of them. Did one of them do this? One. He's dead, isn't he, Marlowe? Yeah. Yeah, Redmond, he's very dead. Oh, no, Marlowe. I only found him a few seconds before you did. Yeah, and the rest of that run, you heard someone coming. You didn't want to be seen, so you ducked back out of sight, huh? I don't buy it, Redmond, because for one thing, it's too pat. For another, how do you explain being here in the first place? Come on, fast. Okay, I'm here because I'm in a nasty jam. Like what? Like $30,000 I've got to pay in the next hour to a guy named Paul Cedar who's running out of patience in a hurry, believe me. About that, I do. I've already met the gentleman. Right now, Redmond, we're talking about Sippy. Okay. Last night, I had things to do, so I gave Edie Tyler the money for the payoff to Cedar. A couple of minutes after she stepped out of the club, somebody roughed her up and got away with a purse and the 30 grand. You're a liar, Redmond. Edie herself told me that purse only had 12 bucks in it. How come? Simple like, Marlowe. In my business, you never yell copper too soon or too loud. It doesn't pay. Mm-hmm. Now, look, for the third time, Redmond, you and Sippy, how do you figure? I don't know. He was at the club tonight, acting funny. When he left, I got a glimpse of Edie's green purse sticking out of his topcoat pocket. Later on, I saw him run away from the car near the club, so I followed. I ended up here a couple of minutes behind him, and that model was the truth, I swear. What'd you do at the drop of a... Hey, wait a minute. Look, if you're telling the truth, I begin to get a different picture. And by that, I specifically mean a very talented but very sly dame named Beth Tyler. Oh, no, Marlo. Why not? Because you love Beth's sister? Face it, Redmond, it doesn't add up any other way. Sippy here couldn't have stolen that purse from Edie... If he did, he'd have taken his dough and blown, not spent his time putting out feelers. But on the other hand, if Sippy happened to see Beth take it from Edie, empty it and toss it away, we've got another story, right? Yeah. Because he wouldn't make a move until he knew how much he had gotten away with. Exactly. But there he ran into trouble because he was trying to get close to Beth. And in doing that, he got mixed up and went for Edie instead, like tonight at the club. Sure. And the dying man's words just now about one twin. To which you can add the unpleasant fact that I personally ran off at the mouth when I was up at Beth's an hour ago. So 
But she knew where to come for Sippy. Look, Redmond, it's got to run that way. I'm sure of it. Well, maybe you're right, Phil, but right or wrong, I'm still in a jam. So if you don't have any objections, I'm going back to my club now for a last try at raising that money again before Cedar shows. You mean you're going to face him, Neil, with or without her? I've got a model. You see, I own a fast club, all right, and I gamble a lot, too. But I don't welch on my markers no more than I knock over flabby little guys. You know what I mean, Phil? I think so. But don't fold now, Neil, because I might still be lucky enough to catch up to Beth Tyler and your money both before your time runs out. And right now that means fast to a phone and a call to Edie, who might know which way a runaway twin would head. I'll see you, Neil. The nearest phone was at an all-night mobile gas station a block away. As I dialed Edie's number, a thought hit me. Maybe Beth wouldn't head anywhere. Maybe she'd just stick around. Hello? Edie, this is Marlowe. Seen anything of Beth? No, I haven't. But why? What is it, Marlowe? Well, from where I stand, two things. First, your sister has the $30,012 that was in your purse last night. Oh? And second, she's just about it for a sloppy around the edges murder. Oh. Now, look, have you any idea where Beth would head if she had to get out of town in a hurry? No, I don't, Marlowe. Oh, well, maybe somebody up around her place does. I'll call you later. Marlowe, wait. Are, are you sold on this? I mean, about the things you said Beth did? Just about, Edie. But for your sake, let's hope I'm wrong. All the way, honey. Goodbye. Driving fast back toward Beth's place on Hazeltine still left me enough time to think about a not-too-small detail that I'd completely overlooked. Thanks to me, the entire Los Angeles Police Department knew nothing about what was going on in and around the Saddle Club. Five minutes later, when I'd parked away from the dock and obviously deserted number 4179, I'd walked back and around to a pair of uncurtained French doors at the side. I knew that oversight is what is generally called a blunder. But in the next second, I knew it was nothing compared to the one I was making currently. If you so much as turn your head again, Marlowe, I'll kill you. Not like you did Sippy, please, Beth. I'd hate to go that way. Sippy was a mistake, Marlowe, believe me. I was rushed. So you shot and ran, huh? Yes. But I didn't run too far, because from where I stood, I could hear and see both you and Redmond and talking the whole thing over. And when you knew that we'd caught on to your act, you decided to follow me and see where I was going before you made your next move. Is that it? Exactly. Now get inside. Go on, the door's unlocked. Mm. All right. Now get over there, near that closet, and don't turn around. Why not? Afraid of the look on my face when you shoot? Shut up, Marlowe. And stop being brave, because unless I have to, I'm not going to kill you. After all, you've already served your purpose. Which I presume was getting mixed up in this mess just long enough to find out about Sippy for you. You presume correctly. Mm -hmm. Also, you talk too much. Now open that closet and get inside. All right. Go on. As you say. But first, baby, one question. Did you do all this for the 30 grand alone? Or does it tie in with Neil Redmond and the way he feels about your sister, Reedy? It's a little bit of each, Marlowe. But as I said, you talk too much. So get in there and shut up. Getting out of Beth Taylor's half-inch thick old closet was like arguing with an umpire. You couldn't be subtle. So 20 tiring minutes went by and the heels on both my feet were numb before the paneling finally gave in and I was out and over to the telephone to put in a call to the police. It should have been made a long time ago. But then... Even as I was halfway through dialing the numbers, 
I saw something on an end table nearby that made me slowly change my mind. It was the two black gloves that Beth wore in the Dancing Hands Act. And while I stared at them like they were alive and beckoning, I thought hard for what must have been a full minute. And then suddenly I knew that my next stop had to be the saddle club. As I parked at the saddle club, I saw light drifting out of Neil's office, which was something I had expected. Inside, I moved along a dark hall toward what I knew would be the trio of Neil Redmond, the Nevada Texan, and Eddie Tyler. All right, Redmond. The raucous voice of Paul Cedar was anything but happy. How stupid you think I am! Oh, oh, that Cedar, I'm telling the truth! Edie had the 30 grand, but somebody got it from her when she was on her way to you. That's a stinking line. You know it, Redmond. You never had the money. This whole thing's been a frame to stall me. And one way or another, I'm going to get you to admit that. No, you're not, Cedar. Uh, And if you don't drop that gun now, you're never going to do anything ever. Come on, let it go. uh, All right. Now sit down and shut up and listen hard because Redmond's telling you the truth. What? Paulo, you know where the money is? That's right. And I also know who took it. Less than an hour ago, a little after I called you, Edie, Beth caught up to me and confessed the whole shebang, exactly as we figured it, Neil. You mean she admitted getting the money from Edie and using you to locate Sippy? That's right. But there's only one drawback to everything she admitted. None of it's true. What do you mean, Marla? I mean, Cedar, that Beth Tyler didn't steal your money from Edie here any more than she killed Sippy. I also mean that as far as I can tell, Beth Tyler was nothing more than a girl who played the piano and got upset when a stranger named Sippy started to bother her. And I never saw the real Beth Tyler after she ran away from a piano in the club tonight. That she's dead and that you, Edie, have been posing as Beth all night because, one, you yourself stole Neil's money and, two, you murdered your sister as well. No! Yes, Edie, come on, admit it, it's true. No, no, it isn't. I... I guess it isn't that, Marlo. In Beth's body? In our dressing room. In the closet. I didn't want to kill her. But she found out that I had only pretended to be robbed when there was no one around. That Sippy had seen me scream and get rid of the purse myself. Sippy, who was only trying to muscle in on a deal, went to her by mistake, huh? Yes. That's how she knew what I'd done. When she confronted me in the dressing room, just before you came in, and said that she wouldn't stand by and let me do a thing like that to Neil, I lost my temper. You killed her, Edie. Yes, I did, Neil. And when Marlo showed up after a scream, I said that someone had attacked me. And then I pretended to be both Beth and myself from there on to get out of the whole thing. And I... I almost did. But... But now I'm so sorry. went by before the police had everybody's story and Paul Cedar and the 30,000 was gone for Nevada and Edie was gone for good. That left just Neil Redman and me alone and standing near the main bar in the club. Neil was doing his best to stay all in one piece. Well, Marlo, it's been a tough night for you, hasn't it? Yeah, but a tougher one for you, Neil. What with Cedar and the money and... The girls, Marlo? Yeah. Yeah. Lisa came out right before the cowboy got too tough, thanks to you. (laughs) Say, so tell me, Phil, how'd you know that Beth was dead and that Edie was both people all along? That was a couple of gloves, Neil, the ones they wore in their dancing hands act. You see, when I first met Edie in the dressing room, she was wearing hers, and one of Beth's was on the floor. Hey, pour me one, will you? Yes, yes. Okay. 
I took it, and later when I met what I thought was Beth, I returned it, and she put it with what we both thought was its mate. Hey, uh... Thanks. But a little while ago, when I got close to the gloves again, I saw that that couldn't be, that they were both for the left-hand meal. Ah. Then when Edie went to Beth's place to pass herself off as her sister, who she had already killed... She was smart enough to know that she should have only one glove around. Yeah, but not smart enough to think about which glove it should be. From there, I worked backwards. Until you got to the three of us at the club and tried what you knew might be the right answer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, you were right, Phil, all the way. Yeah, but I was still gambling. If I had been wrong, Neil, I was giving the real Beth a long head start. Uh, It's always that way when you gamble, Phil. I know. Sometimes you pick right, sometimes wrong. Mm -hmm. Cards, dice. (laughs) Even with twins. Good night, fella. When I finally got to my car, started out of the valley and back toward Hollywood, it was better than 8 o'clock in the morning. And here and there as I drove, I, I saw people who I'd never heard of and who, well, who'd never heard of me. Stumbling outside after their morning papers. And I got to wondering what they were going to think when they read about a girl who had killed both a twin sister in a nightclub and a flabby guy in a motel who wasn't much good. Well, it was hard to say. And for myself, I was too tired to think. Or maybe I just didn't want to. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Lou Krugman, Ed Begley, Paul Fries, and Bert Holland. The special music is by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... When it started, it was simple. Just a lawsuit for damages. But before it was over, it was far from simple, and the damages were murder. All because of a red-headed woman, a ghostwriter with ambition and a match that burned with a bright green flame. With part of its star-studded Sunday nights devoted to shows named after great personalities such as Jack Benny, Lum and Abner, and Amos and Andy, CBS also goes to famous fiction for one of the brightest, most dramatic of its Sunday galaxy, The Adventures of Sam Spade. Created by the master hand of Dashiell Hammett, Sam Spade cuts a new and deadly caper with mystery, murder, and adventure on most of these same CBS network stations every Sunday. Join him tomorrow night. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. It was The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. That one was called The Dancing Hands. And it originally was broadcast March 19th, 1949 on CBS. Did you notice in the show how he talked about the spotlight on the car? The fellow that was killed, what's his name? I I, I can't think of it now. 
but he had a spotlight on his car. Do you remember those on cars back in the back in the fifties? I can remember they would always be controlled from the inside. Uh, we had a forty-nine Ford in our family, and there was a spotlight on both doors, and there was a handle inside, and you could literally adjust that, and it would it would uh, shoot a spotlight out, so you 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 could look for things. I remember there was a um, security service. My, my grandparents lived in a fairly affluent neighborhood, and a lot of people had personal security. And he had a security service that would drive around the neighborhood. And uh, all of the people that subscribed to them or hired them, they would check their house. And, and you, you could be sitting in the living room like at midnight, and all of a sudden you'd see this light go across the front window. They had a car with a spotlight on it. And they would flash it around the bushes and things to make sure there was nobody trying to get in the house. Hadn't thought about that for years. But yeah, cars used to have spotlights. When did that stop? I I don't remember. Let's see. um, The Coinga Freeway. He mentioned going up the Coinga Freeway. And there is no Coinga Freeway. There's the Hollywood Freeway that goes through the Coinga Pass. And to be honest, I didn't think... There were any freeways in 1949. I thought the first freeway in Los Angeles was the Pasadena, which runs from downtown to Pasadena. But that's something I guess I'll have to look up, the Coinga Freeway. Now, the Coinga Pass is the pass between the Santa Monica Mountains that go goes into the valley, into uh, like North Hollywood and Sherman Oaks. Well, it's the Hollywood Freeway, and it kind of follows Coinga Boulevard, but you go past Universal Studios, you go past the Hollywood Bowl. That's the Coinga Pass. Then there's the Sepulveda Pass that is over on the Beverly Hills side, which is closer to the coast. In fact, he talked about Benedict Canyon and Westwood. Well, that's over near the Sepulveda Pass. Westwood is um, where UCLA is, very affluent area. A lot of the movie premieres these days that happen in Hollywood take place at one of the uh, theaters in, in Westwood. Okay, I guess that's all the show notes I had on that one. More Philip Marlowe coming up in the weeks ahead. And we are slowly, as I brought out earlier, reestablishing our uh, shows on the website, theoldtimeradioshow.com. So uh, as the weeks go on, you'll see more and more episodes of Philip Marlowe available to be heard there as well. I hope you all had a nice... uh, holiday here. As I record this, it's just a week past uh, Labor Day, and Carol and I took the weekend, a long weekend, and and, uh, took a drive up into Iowa, which we had never really done before. I've been in Iowa many times, but just following some blue highways and going out into Iowa, it was very pleasant. We went up from uh, the St. Louis area. We We went up and spent a couple nights in Davenport, used that as a home base, And we wanted to visit uh, Galena, Illinois. That was the main objective of the trip. Galena is where Ulysses Grant lived before he uh, became a Civil War general. And it's also a very historic river town. We saw a lot of river towns. We followed up the Mississippi River. And I'll tell you something about river towns. Most of them are old and they're brick. I mean, we were in Fort Madison, Iowa, and Keokuk, Iowa, and we were in uh, Burlington, Iowa, Muscatine, Iowa. 
uh, a couple in Illinois, and almost all of them are just very old and uh, brick. But we were talking about spotlights on cars, and it's amazing how much you rely on new technology when you take a trip. For instance, on the radio, uh, you're out in the middle of a cornfield a lot of times, so you don't get good radio reception. And this car, we had rented a car, and it had XM satellite radio. Well, that was wonderful. And we listened to a lot of music stations and some talk stations. In fact, I'm going to play a song, a couple songs that we heard that I hadn't heard in years. But we also started depending on our cell phones for GPS. And as we were going up, we were kind of just taking our time. We decided to visit a town, a historical town called Nauvoo, Illinois, right on the Mississippi River. So we just turned on the old GPS on the phone. And so we're going along pretty well, and we're going down these neat highways, rolling hills, a beautiful, beautiful day. At any rate, as we're traveling along this road, it was a fairly narrow two-lane road. I don't even think there was a room to pull off. There was not a shoulder on either side of the road. But all of a sudden, the road detoured to the right. But as we're listening to the GPS, it said, continue going straight ahead on Route D, or whatever it was. And so, <laughs> rather than go to the right with the road... We we followed instructions and went straight ahead on Route D or Route 39 or whatever. All of a sudden, we realized we were on a gravel road. And on both sides of us, there was eight-foot-high rows of corn. We, we were in the middle of a cornfield. And I told Carol, I said, this can't be right. And she said, well, maybe we, you should just pay attention. Maybe it changes up ahead. So we went on for about a half a mile. And finally, I said... There's no way I'm staying on this. And so we then we got and looked at a map. So with these GPS, I think sometimes they just give you the shortest route. But that's a strange feeling to all of a sudden be on a gravel road and have corn stalks uh, towering above you on both sides. It's like you're, you're driving down through a tunnel. But that was funny. But we had a really nice trip. Here's one of the songs that I had bought and then didn't want to play it because it wasn't a cool enough song to play for my friends. I was terrible that way. But I had not heard this song for years and years. See if you remember this one. I'll give you a hint. It's from a group called Four Jacks and a Jill. See if you remember this. It's a strange, strange world we live in. Tell me all I know and I'm 
Jacks and a Jill. And I believe that was from either 65 or 68. I believe it was 1968. And the name of that one was Master Jack. And I had not heard that song for years and years and years. XM uh, is pretty good that way. They, they play a lot of songs that are more obscure. They don't just take, you know, the top uh, 200 songs from the 60s and limit their playlist to that. They have a lot of diversity. All right, it is time for a little bit of comedy. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the love. Liars and clowns Okay, on our comedy corner tonight We're going to laugh out loud with Jack Benny and the gang from 1952 This is an episode that is commonly referred to as the return visit uh, from the IRS. That's the second part of the show. The first part of the show takes place in Jack's home, and it's all pretty funny. I am finding it increasingly difficult to find really high-quality recordings of the Benny Show. Uh, most of the ones I have, I've played, and, and I've still got a few. Now, this one's a pretty good sound recording tonight. The thing is, I'm not sure where I got this show, uh, this particular episode, but I do notice that that there's been some edits made to it, and I I don't like that. Now, agreed that I edit out commercials on shows. If the commercial runs in the middle of the show and has nothing to do with the show, like on Gunsmoke, you'll have an L&M commercial right in the middle, and I'll take those out. If you want to listen to those on a reel of commercials later for nostalgic reasons, that's great. But as far as I'm concerned, the commercial interferes with the storyline. However... The ad agencies that owned these shows back in the 40s and the, and the early 50s had different philosophies, and some felt that the commercial should be incorporated in the show. And that's what happened on Benny. You know, when the, uh, what's the name of the quartet would come in and sing a song, usually based on a Lucky Strike commercial. And it was very funny, and it was always part of the show. On Fibber McGee and Molly... Uh, Harlow Wilcox would, would do the Johnson Wax commercial right in the middle of the show, and Fibber would uh, criticize him for it. And it was always really funny. 
I remember on the early George Burns and Gracie Allen TV show that they would incorporate a Maxwell House coffee commercial just as part of the show. George would come in and say, Gracie, is there any coffee? And then all of a sudden they'd go into a Maxwell House commercial and you, you didn't even realize it. Well, I don't know if that's what was edited out tonight, but something has been edited because I noticed two places where there was been a cut made. But I don't think it interferes with the, with the show, but I apologize for it. I don't like when that's done. But it still, it runs just about its original full length, and it is a very funny episode. So here we go, Jack Benny Show and a return visit by the IRS. The Jack Benny Program. Starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, since Jack has been in television, he wants to keep his weight down. At the moment, he's at his home in Beverly Hills in a steam cabinet trying to reduce. Rochester, I can stand it a little hotter. Turn up the steam, will you? Yes, sir. That's enough. Not too hot. Gee, I'm glad I bought this steam cabinet. How long have I been in here? About ten minutes. I hope you're not taking too much. Well, what do the instructions say? Let's see. I'll read them. Men up to 20 years old stay in cabinet not more than a half hour. A half hour? Men up to 25 years, no more than 20 minutes. 20 minutes? Men up to 30 years of age, no more than 15 minutes. 15. Men up to... <laughs> what are you mm-mm about? According to this chart, I should have just dipped you in like a tea bag. <laughs> Stop. Gee, it's awfully hot in this cabinet. I think I'll get out. I better not open it for a couple of minutes. Why, haven't I had enough? Yeah, but the potatoes aren't done yet. (laughs) Oh, darn it. Don't blame me, boss. It was your own idea. As long as we had the heat, you didn't want to waste it. Well... What a time I had talking you out of holding that leg of lamb on your lap. (laughs) I was just trying to economize, that's all. Anyway, it's too hot. Open it up, will you? I'm getting out. Yes, sir. Phew. Gee, it's good to get out of here. Uh-oh, I'm afraid the heat was on a little too high. Why, am I red? Boss, if you had a pitchfork in your hand, you'd scare me to death. <laughs> well, I feel fine. Uh, hand me my robe, Rochester. Yes, sir. I'll get it. Hello? Hello, Jack. Oh, hello, Mary. Jack, the reason I called is that Wednesday I'm giving a little party at my house, and I want to know if you can come. Well, certainly, Mary. Thanks. Who else are you having? Well, I'm going to ask the whole cast of our show. Your producer, your writers, and also your... My my writers? Yes, I thought you might like to have them there. Why? You want to be the life of the party, don't you? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. They are funny looking, you know. Well, I better hang up. I've got a lot of people to call. Bye, Jack. So long, Mary, and thanks. Uh, Rochester, next Wednesday night, Miss Livingston is giving a party, so I won't... Rochester! Rochester! Here I am, boss. Where were you? I heard the postman, so I went to get the mail. Oh. What came? Just some bills circular in your copy of Look Magazine. Oh, let me see it. Hey, Rochester. 
Roger, there's a picture of you and me on the cover. On the cover? Look! Let me see it, boss! Yeah! <laughs> what are you laughing at? I bet I'm the only man in the world who ever had his picture on the cover of a magazine and couldn't afford to buy it. <laughs> oh, you do all right. I don't know. I just bought a toothbrush on, in- on installment plan. <laughs> installment? What would that mean? <laughs> well, that's not my fault. If you saved your... Mo- Rochester, see who that is while I finish getting dressed. Yes, sir. Sure and be guard to the pleasure to greet such a fine rock of a lad on this day, the likes of which I haven't seen in years. How do you do? How do you do? <laughs> who is it, Rochester? It ain't Mr. Kitzel. <laughs> well, who is it? Sure and to the son of the old side himself, Dennis Patrick Aloysius Jeremiah McNulty or Day. <laughs> Oh, come on in, Dennis. And look, kid, tomorrow is St. Patrick's Day. Aren't you a little early with your brogue? No, I'm practicing. I'll have to talk like this all day tomorrow. You have to talk like that all day? Yeah. If you don't, they rip off your shamrock, take a shillelagh, and break all your Morton Downey records. (laughs) Oh, well, you know, Dennis, I've always thought that St. Patrick's Day comes at the wrong time of the year. Yeah? What do you mean? Well, how can March 17th be dedicated to the wearing of the green when only two days before, the government takes it all away from you. (laughs) Now, Dennis, let's stop talking. Just let me hear the song you're going to do on the program. Yes, sir. Hold it, kid. Hello? Hello, Jack. This is Mary again. Oh, what is it, Mary? Well, I called Dennis's house to invite him to my party, and his mother told me he's at your house. Is he there? Yes. Dennis, Mary wants you on the phone. Yeah, these dames, they won't let me alone. (laughs) Never mind. Just talk to her. Yes, sir. Hello, Mary. Hello, Dennis. Look, I'm having a party on Wednesday night. Would you like to come? On Wednesday? Yes. Uh, do you mind if I bring my neighbor, Hetty Lamar? Your neighbor, Hetty Lamar? Yeah. Dennis, I happen to know Hetty Lamar lives in Benedict Canyon, and you live in Westwood. Oh, yeah. Hetty Lamar's house is right next to mine. Since when? Ever since the rain. <laughs> All right, Dennis. Bring anyone who floats by. Gee, thanks, Mary. Goodbye. Bye. Well, say, Mr. Benny, when I go to Mary's party, I'm going to bring... Hello? Dennis, I forgot to tell you something. What? Don't drive Jack nuts. Just sing your song. Okay. Dennis. Quiet. I'm going to sing. Oh, oh. Well, go right on. Brook still leaping there. 
Does it still run down to Johnny Cole? Through Killybates, Kilkerry and Kildare. How are things in Glockamora? Is that willow tree still weeping there? Does that lassie with a twinkling eye come smiling by? And does she walk away sad and dreamy there? Not to see me there. So I ask each weeping willow and each brook along. You certainly picked an appropriate song for St. Patrick's Day. And I might add, Dennis, that as time goes on, your voice gets better and better. Well, if it's so good, how about a raise? <laughs> you know, Dennis, on second thought, instead of singing Glockamore on the program, why don't you sing the song I wrote? When you say I beg your pardon, then I'll come back to you. sell any copies, but it sure gets rid of pests. Oh, Rochester. Rochester. Yes, boy? I'm awfully hungry. What does my diet say I can have for lunch? A piece of rye crisp and a hard-boiled egg. That's all I'm supposed to eat for lunch? No, you just feel it for lunch. You eat it for dinner. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sakes. That's the strictest diet I have. Come in. Oh, hello, Phil. Hello, Jackson. What's the matter, Phil? You sound depressed. Yeah, I am. I just came back from the doctor. The doctor? What's wrong? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I became allergic to something, and I broke out in a rash on my back. It's just something awful. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, so I went to the doctor, and every day he's been testing me to find out what I'm allergic to, and today he found out. <laughs> well, what are you allergic to? Alcohol. No. Yeah, the only way I can get rid of this itch is to stop drinking entirely. Oh. Well, what are you going to do? Grow long fingernails. I'm in for a lot of scratches. 
what I thought. Hey, by the way, Jackson, I've been meaning to tell you I saw you on TV last week. And, and you look wonderful. Well, thanks, Phil, but I don't deserve all the credit. I had the best makeup man in the country. Oh, really? Yes, he's the same one who made up President Truman for his last television speech. Yeah, hold it a minute. Why would President Truman want to use makeup? Phil, if you were asking for $8 billion, you'd want to look good, too. <laughs> Alice would give it to me regardless of how I look. Well, she can probably... Hmm. Hello? Oh, it's me again, Jack. Oh, what is it now, Mary? Well, I called Phil's house and nobody answered, and I was wondering if he's over there. Yes, he is. Just a second. Phil, it's for you. It's Mary. Oh. Hello, Livy, you doll, you. Hello, Hambone. <laughs> look, Phil... I'm having a party on Wednesday, and I'd like you and Alice to come. Yeah, okay, Liv. We'll be there. Hey, say, uh, uh, you want me to bring my orchestra boys along, too? Uh, no, no, Phil. I haven't got room for 36 more people. What do you mean, 36? I only got 18 fellas in my band. Yeah, what about their parole officers? <laughs> oh, yeah, I almost forgot about them cats. Uh, uh, look, Mary, uh... Uh, Mary, can I at least bring Remley? No. Sammy, my drummer? No. Now, wait a minute. I've got to bring at least one of my boys. Why? Somebody's got to scratch my back. <laughs> Phil, I don't know what you're talking about, but if your back itches, can't you scratch it yourself? No, I'll be using both hands to pour the stuff that makes it itch. <laughs> Phil, I don't understand. Anyway, will you come to my party? Natch, I'll be there, Liv. Thanks. Okay, bye. Mary, uh, Mary invites you to party too, eh, Phil? Yeah. Your lunch is ready, Mr. Benny. Oh, thanks, Rochester. Hey, Jackson, I'm kind of hungry. I think I'll stay and have some lunch with you. Oh. Oh, you want to eat here, huh? When you say I beg your pardon. <laughs> it works every time. I got the song right that time. <laughs> When you say, I beg your pardon, gee, I mustn't forget my own melody. Gosh, I'm hungry. These diets are murder. I'm going to eat something. Oh, Rochester. Rochester, come here a minute, will you? Yes, boss. Look, Rochester, I'm really hungry. What's in the refrigerator? Dennis Day. <laughs> what? When he left, he opened the wrong door. Oh, well, leave him there for a while. I don't want to hear his explanation of how it happened. Anyway, Rochester, just make me a sandwich out of, uh... Boss, why are you staring out the window? What? Why are you staring out the window? Those two men. Those two men across the street. They just stepped off the curb and they're coming this way. Yes? We're from the income tax department. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, you're the same men who were here last year. Uh, come in. 
Your name is, uh, is Mr. Kearns, isn't it? Yes, and this is my assistant, Mr. Wright. Wright? How do you do? (laughs) Gentlemen, if you've come about my income tax, I've already sent it in. Oh, Mr. Benny, we're not here to discuss this year's taxes. We'd like to talk to you again about last year's. Last year's? I thought that was settled. We went over it so many times. Then when I didn't hear from you again, I I assumed that nothing was wrong. I thought that everything was right. How do you do? <laughs> hmm. Mr. Benny, we're still trying to help you. Help me? And we feel that you must have made a mistake in your last year's return. A mistake? Yes. We can't understand how a man who earned over $300,000 could only spend $17 for entertainment. (laughs) Well, that's all I spent. I can prove it to you. Rochester, get my books out of my desk drawer, will you? Yes, sir. There's no need I'm going to prove it to you for once and for all. But, Mr. Benny... This drawer here on the left? No, the right. How do you do? Mr. Benny, no one shouts at a tax collector. (laughs) Oh, I'm... I'm sorry. Mr. Benny, believe me, we're here to help you. I know, I know. (laughs) Yes, we don't think you're taking full advantage of deductible items. I'm not? Here are your books, boss. Thanks. I'll take your butler, for instance. You mean Rochester? Yes. Even though he's your butler, if he assists you in any way pertaining to the production of your radio or television shows or any of your other business activities, then that portion of his pay is deductible. You mean... uh... Yes. In other words, under those conditions, you could split his salary. Split my salary? (laughs) Yes. Gentlemen, they've split infinities and they've split the atom. But I defy anybody to split my salary. Rochester, this is no time... Uh, just a moment, Mr. Benny. Rochester, are you inferring that your salary is that small? Well, in Santa Anita colloquialism, it starts off pretty good, but something always happens good coming around the far turn. Uh, what do you mean? Well, every payday, Mr. Benny sits me down and explains how he has to make certain deductions out of my salary. So much for withholding, so much for unemployment insurance, and so much for Social Security. Then he further explains that what remains is known as take-home pay. That's right. Take-home pay. Then he points out that I'm living at his home, so he takes it. (laughs) Hmm. Mr. Benny, is that right? How do you do? I can play that game, too, brother. Uh, Mr. Benny, I just looked in the book that Rochester brought you, and uh, there's an item that interests me. Uh, Which item is that? Uh, This one here. Income from violin engagement, approximately $3. (laughs) Yes, I filled in that entry myself. But why is it approximately $3? Well, I was playing my violin at the opening of a butcher shop, and they gave me two pounds of meat. They gave you two pounds of meat for playing your violin? They didn't give it to him. Somebody hit him with a round stick. (laughs) Well, I brought it home. What's the difference? (laughs) Uh, That brings up a point, Mr. Benny. 
If you receive revenue playing your violin, then the money you spend on his upkeep and repair is deductible. It is? Yes. You see, Mr. Benny, we're trying to help you. I know, I know. <laughs> for instance, Mr. Benny, how many strings do you buy for your violin? Rosin, pegs, bridges, repairing your bow, and so forth. Well, I don't know. You see, I get everything through my violin teacher. He keeps track of all that. Well, in that case, in order to help you, uh, would you mind if we talk to your violin teacher? No, no, not at all. His name is Professor LeBlanc. His uh, address is 6212 Iman Avenue. It's on the other side of town. We'll find it. Come on, Joe. Well, Bill, there it is. 6212 Iman Avenue. Yeah, what a run-down looking Roman house. Let's go in. Oh, here's his room. Professor LeBlanc, violin teacher. Yeah. Professor LeBlanc? We. Oui. We're from the income tax department. Income tax? Income tax! Gentlemen, look at me. See for yourself. I am barefoot. My clothes are torn. Professor. I sleep on a hard spring. I ate the mattress. Income tax! Professor! <laughs> Control yourself. Uh, yes, we're here to talk to you about one of your pupils, uh, Mr. Benny. Ah, uh, about Mr. Benny? Come in, come in. Perhaps I can help you send him to the Bastille. <laughs> no, 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 Professor. We just want to find out how much money Mr. Benny spent on his violin. Money? <laughs> yes. Don't you have any books? Uh-oh, oui. I have written three books about Mr. Benny, but the publishers would not believe them. No, no, we mean records, financial records. We want to know what, uh, uh, what expenses Mr. Benny's incurred in the upkeep of his violin. Oh, that I do not know. I just charge him so much for the lesson, and that includes everything. Oh, well, perhaps we could break that down. Uh, how much do you charge him for the lesson? Well, he is supposed to give me two dollars, but... Before every lesson, Monsieur Benny sits me down and explains how he has to make certain deductions out of my salary. <laughs> so much for withholding, so much for unemployment insurance, and so much for social security. Then he further explains that what remains is known as take home... Uh, come on, Bill, we've heard this before. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Professor LeBlanc. You're welcome, gentlemen. Oh, uh, by the way, Professor, we've never heard Mr. Benny play the violin. How does he sound? Sound? Well, gentlemen, let me explain. The strings on a violin are made of cat gut, and the violin bow is made from horse hair. Mm -hmm. So if you want to know how Mr. Benny violin playing sounds, think of a cat being stepped on by a horse. <laughs> Yes, we understand. Well, goodbye, Professor LeBlanc. Goodbye, gentlemen. Say, Bill. Yes, Joe? Why are we going to all this trouble just to help Mr. Benny? I don't know. There's something about those big blue eyes that gets you. <laughs> yeah, I guess so.
1952, The Jack Benny Show. And Jack gets a visit, a second visit, from the IRS. Just a couple of uh, quick notes. I I like the reference to the steam cabinet. Do you remember back in the 50s, the 40s? I don't remember the 40s. I remember, eh, my memories start around 54, 55. But I remember steam cabinets. They would be... um, large boxes that your head would stick out of and the rest of your body would be like in a steam room. They would create steam. And obviously that's what Jack was in tonight. I I wonder what happened to those. Maybe maybe they just didn't work. The other thing I remember, and they didn't mention this on the show, but you talk about weight reduction, is the belts that went around you and then shook you. Remember that? You'd see that all the time on, uh, like, television shows or something. All right. I I mentioned um, Benedict Canyon and Westwood in connection with with Philip Marlowe. I I listen to these shows ahead of time before I make my comments. Then I just realized those comments had to do with the Jack Benny show. Philip Marlowe was up in the Coinga Pass, but he wasn't in Benedict Canyon or uh, Westwood. That was on the Benny show. Just a couple other quick notes. Uh, Dennis Day sang the song, How Are Things in Glockamora? That music was uh, composed by Burton Lane, and lyrics were written by E.Y. Harburg. The song was first published in 1946 and introduced in the musical Finian's Rainbow. There is no actual city named Glockamora in Ireland. In a television interview made late in his life, Harburg revealed the name Glockamora was made up by the composer who had devised a lyric, There's a Glen in Glockamora. Harburg liked the name, but insisted on changing the line to How Are Things in Glockamora, as this is more personal and immediately evocative of nostalgia and homesickness. So you always do think of that as an Irish tune, and very fitting that uh, Dennis Day would sing it around St. Patrick's Day. Did you notice that St. Patrick's Day was two days after tax day? Tax day back then was in March, not in April. And there was one other thing I wanted to comment on. Oh, I have down that this show was originally from 52, but it's pretty obvious to me it must be from 53. Why do I say that? Because in the beginning... um, Rochester's friend asked him if, while in New York, he went and saw Tea and Sympathy. Well, Tea and Sympathy premiered on Broadway at the Ethel Barrymore Theater September 30th, 1953, and starred Deborah Carr, Leif Erickson, and John Kerr. It had a total run of 712 performances, and at some point during the run, Joan Fontaine and Anthony Perkins took over the roles that had been played by Deborah Carr and John Kerr. So, Tea and Sympathy uh, didn't even open until 1953, so this Benny show could not have been from 52. The other thing is, uh, they mentioned William Holden and the Oscar. William Holden won Best Actor for Stalag 17, which came out in uh, 1953, and he was not awarded the Oscar until the spring of 54. So there you go. I guess my source for this particular show just was not very dependable. Pretty obvious that uh, the show we just listened to was from the spring, probably in March, 
uh, because of St. Patrick's Day in uh, 1954 and not uh, 1952. All right, see if you remember this song from the Rooftop Singers. song and I, I I picture myself in ninth grade on a Saturday night watching Hoot Nanny on NBC or some television network. Remember Hoot Nanny? And then they used to play a lot of those folk type songs and that was one I remember very well. See if you remember this one. <laughs> many songs written about the eternal triangle. This next one tells the story of a Mr. Grayson, a beautiful woman, and a condemned man named Tom Dooley. When the sun rises tomorrow, Tom Dooley must hang. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley, poor boy, you're bound to die. I met her on the mountain, there I took her life. 
met her on the mountain, stabbed her with my knife. Hang down your head, Tom, Julie. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom, Julie. Poor boy, you're bound to die. This time tomorrow, reckon where I'll be. Hadn't it been for Grayson, I'd have been in Tennessee. Oh, well, now, boy, hang down your head. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head and Oh, boy, you're bound to die. Oh, well, now, boy, hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head and try Oh boy, you're bound to die This time tomorrow Reckon where I'll be Down in some lonesome valley Hanging from a white oak tree Hang down your head, Tom, to leave Hang down your head and cry When you sing that song, when you listen to it, do you mix up the parts? It's like one of the trio has one set of lyrics and another of the trio has another set of lyrics and they blend them together. But I, I've always found that when I sing that, I'll sing a part of one person's uh, lyrics and then skip over to the other person's lyrics to sort of make it meld, if you know what I mean. I bet a lot of you did that. Great song. Folk, song, folk music was so big in the uh, late 50s and early 60s. And it really, really is kind of a neat heritage to have. I love the Kingston Trio. And while we were uh, on our little trip, my wife started playing some of her songs. And she had several uh, Kingston Trio tunes. And maybe we'll play some more of them in the weeks ahead. I just remembered that they made a uh, movie uh, and called it The Legend of Tom Dooley. I remember it starred Michael Landon. I believe it was a black and white western. And it was about a fellow in the Civil War. I remember he played a Civil War soldier. As I recall, they, they tried to form a story around the lyrics to the song because the song was so popular. But I think that they made it an accidental death. I don't remember the details. I remember it wasn't very good. At least I didn't think it was when I was a kid. Every once in a while, it'll play on like Turner Classic movie or AMC or something. But I have not seen that movie in years and years and years. The Legend of Tom Dooley. Psst. <sniffs> 
No. Oh! week's episode of Gunsmoke, we have a real treat for you. You know, John Meston took up the full-time writing assignments for Gunsmoke in the second year and did almost all of the scripts exclusively for several years. But the episode we're going to listen to tonight came, came from the first year, 1953. In fact, this one originally was broadcast January 24th, and it is just, it, it was written by Kathleen Height, and she just writes such warm and fuzzy characters, and you're just going to meet a lady tonight you are going to love. And her name is um, Ellen Henry. And oh, you're going to love Ellen and her her really wonderful son, Luther. <laughs> this is just, it just makes, you, it's just going to make you bubble over with, with warm, good feeling. So I hope you enjoy this episode of Gunsmoke, all about Ellen Henry and her son, Luther, and for some reason, the episode was very rudely uh, named Old Lady. But ignore that and enjoy the excellent sound quality on this one. This one is really one of our best. So here we go, Gunsmoke and Old Lady. And in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with the U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Over inside a Dodge anyway, Chester. 
There's Ellen Henry's homestead. Wonder how she'd take to serving up a breakfast, Mr. Dillon. I'm plumb hungry. Well, I'll settle for water and the horses. I don't imagine Ellen has any extra food. No, sir. It's gone pretty hard for her since Ethan died, hasn't it? That's the talk. Look at her place. Three lean-tos and not a green thing growing. I don't know how she makes out. Well, maybe Luther helps more than the folks give him credit for. For a son, he's not much good to my way of thinking. I don't know when he turns a hand for his mother between stops at the Texas Trail and the Long Branch. At least not much like his father was. Or Ellen either, for that matter. It's a mite early. Nobody's stirring. Oh, oh, oh. We better just water our horses and ride on, Chester. Yes, sir. Quiet-like, isn't it? Hey, where'd you come from, Mr. Dillon? Uh, from the house, I think. Luther? I don't know. You're trespassing. Get off my land. It's Marshal Dillon, Ellen. We just stopped to water our horses. I recognize you. Trespassing still goes, Marshal. You're awful quick to fire, Ellen. Ethan and me never took the folks arriving unannounced. I still don't take to it. Well, that's no cause to be firing on us that way, Miss Henry, especially since you recognized us. Quit whimpering. If I'd aimed to hit you, I'd have hit you. All right, Ellen. Get off my land and stay off. Just don't you get in any trouble with that rifle, Ellen. I expect you'll hear about it if I do, Marshal. Now get. I don't always aim high. Come on, Chester. How old would you say she is, Mr. Dillon? Uh, she can't be over 40, I guess. If that. She looks like an old woman. 60 or more. She's dried up. Dead inside. Remember when Ethan and her and the boy came out here, Mr. Dillon, right after the war? She's an awful pretty little thing. Mm-hmm. Luther was a little more than a baby then. No, Mr. Dillon, I was just thinking. Ethan was so proud of his homestead and his boy and Ellen. Now he's five years dead, the boy's gone bad, and... His wife and his homestead, they've just dried up. It's kind of sad, ain't it? Yeah, it is. Well, come on, Chester, let's get on into Dodge. Marshal, Marshal, Oh, Mitch. Well, what'll it be? Uh, set up a bottle of rye, will you? Yes, sir, Marshal Dillon. <laughs> Look, there's Luther over there at the table, alone. Yeah, I saw him. <clears throat> Thanks, Mitch. Wait here, Chester. Yes, sir. Uh, Mitch, could I have a little sugar in Mind if I don't get to my feet, Marshal? 
I got the feeling if I tried to stand up straight, I'd fall over first thing I knew. Sit still, Luther. I just don't have a lot of choice about it, Marshal. I was out by your place this morning, Luther. I hadn't seen your mother in a long time. Wish I could say the same. A woman shouldn't have to run a homestead alone. Not when her son's big enough to be a real help. Is this a lecture, Marshal? A do-good talk? Put your own name on it, Luther. I can't make you feel what you don't feel. But in a way, you're responsible for your mother. And what she does. I'm real lucky, Marshal. I can quit listening any time I don't want to hear something. Between the old lady and people like you, I quit listening an awful lot. Get it straight, Luther. I don't care what happens to you. I done something wrong? You accusing me of something unlawful, Marshal? No. But if you have any feeling left for your mother or what happens to her, you'll do something about her. Living out there alone so much, she's gone a little crazy. <laughs> she shot at you. <laughs> Is that all concerning you, Marshal? Half the time I do go home, she levels off at me. I got a ride in under fire. Or crawl in on my belly. She's crazy, like you said. I swear, she's crazy. Then you ought to bring her into town. Get a keeper for her. Maybe I would. If I cared what happened to her. I don't care. I don't care at all. Well, that's up to you, Luther. Now, that's just another one of them things I didn't hear you say, Marshal. Luther's just plain drunk, isn't he, sir? That and just plain no good. Well, whatever you said drove him right out of here, Mr. Dillon. Mm-hmm. Well, we haven't been in the office since early yesterday, Chester. All right, sir. Only... Only what? Well, sir... Mitch has got a catalog in the back room, and he's not busy, and he says it's just full of things you can order straight from St. Louis. I thought I'd... Well... Uh, you got extra money, have you just... Oh, no, sir. Well, that is not really extra money, Mr. Dillon. It's just that... Well, Mitch swears you can get underwear from this catalog that don't rub your skin raw, and I'd like to take a look at it. <laughs> All right, Chester, I'll wait. Yes, sir. Thank you. Marshal. Uh, oh, hello, Cass. Now, what's on your mind? Talk I heard, Marshal. It's uh, private, like maybe we'd go to your office. We can do our talking here. <laughs> I thought you was always of a mind to get me inside there, Marshal, where you could turn the key on me. Maybe I will someday, Cass. Now, come on, speak up. Yeah, I heard talk at Luther Henry Road cattle off Carnes' place last night. Saw you talking with him just now. Wondered if you'd heard the same. Haven't heard a thing, Cass. Odd you wouldn't know. I was out of Dodge last night, all night. Uh, I wonder if it's so. L Luther didn't give himself away when you talked just now. 
You're the one who's heard the talk, Cap. I got my rights. I can ask questions of you, Marshal. If a man's heard ain't safe, he's got a right to know. Are you worried for Carnes or for you? If Carnes' cattle can be rode off, mine can. No? I didn't know you had much of a herd. What a man has is his own business, Marshal. I'm asking about Luther and the other rider. They say there was two. If Luther's wrong with the law, I'll get him. Is there anything else on your mind? Thanks, Mitch, for letting me see the book. Not a thing, Marshal. But I don't much like your attitude. I can't see that worrying me too much, Cass. All right, Chester, let's go. Yes, sir. Mr. Dillon, I was watching him from the back there. He's a sniveling sort, that cast. Mm-hmm. Come to think of it, though, I don't know a single bad thing he's done. Know any good he's done? No, sir. Can't say that I do, Mr. Dillon. Well, how about you? Did you find out about your fancy underwear? Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> All right, now we can tend to business, huh? Come on. Marshal. I was waiting for you. Oh, good morning, Mr. Carnes. Howdy, Chester. Well, how do, Mr. Carnes? You got the key, Chester. Yes, sir. Well, I don't see you in town much, Mr. Carnes. Only when I got business, Marshal. Yeah. Well, come on in, won't you? My, it's close in here. <laughs> We've been away a day and a night, Mr. Carnes. Sure gets close that way. I'll just open up the back. Won't you have a chair, Mr. Carnes? I don't have a long piece to say, Marshal. It don't take long to say some of my cattle were stolen last night. Yeah, I heard. So soon? Yeah, Cass Stetter told me about it a few minutes ago. Hmm. Well, I don't know how Cass come by the information, but it's true. This is the second time it's happened in the last few weeks. You don't keep much cattle, do you? Hardly any. I suppose a hundred heads is the most I ever had at one time. Mm-hmm. But last night I lost five or six... Not the same time before. Cass was of the mind that uh, Luther Henry did it. I don't know, Marshal. One of my hands said Luther was out of my place the other day just looking around. I got no real reason to suspect him. Only thing I know is that whoever it was rides a horse that shot all the way around. You don't see a lot of that on the prairie. No, you don't. You think there was just one rider, Mr. Carnes? There was two from the tracks, but the boys and me lost them in the rain. I thought I'd tell you about it, Marshal. I can't afford to lose a little I got. No, I'll do what I can, Mr. Kirk. I... I kind of hope it isn't Luther. Not for him so much as Ellen. She's had enough trouble. Yeah. Well, Chester and I'll ride out to the Henry place and look around, Mr. Carnes. If uh, Luther's guilty, maybe some of Ellen's troubles will be over. Or maybe they'll just be beginning...
I swear, Mr. Dillon, I feel like I was riding right into the camp of the enemy, coming back to Ellen this way. <laughs> you think we should be flying a white flag as we ride up, Chester? Well, I'd feel a little safer to tell the honest truth. Uh, she's got no reason to fire on us. <laughs> but I'll agree, that's pretty small comfort. No. Look yonder, Mr. Dillon. I think I saw her peering out. It's all right, Chester. Come on. I don't see Luther's horse around. Maybe he isn't here. Well? Afternoon, Ellen. I uh, want to talk a bit about uh, Luther. I got work to do in the shed. I'm going there. You want to talk? Let me help, Ellen. I'll get it. Uh, He's got a loose shoe. I aim to fix it. Well, we could be a hand, Ellen. If, yes, uh... I'm proud to. I aim to fix it myself. All right. He wouldn't have shoes if I waited for a man to shoe him. There he is. Easy. Easy, Dal. Easy. Oh. You come to talk, Marshal. Yeah, about Luther. Come on. Huh. Two nails clean out. No wonder it's loose. Carnes lost some cattle last night. Two riders got off with five or six head. One of Carnes' hands thinks Luther was one of them. Is he around, Ellen? I told you before. He comes and goes, Luther does. Well, have you seen him since we were here this morning? Don't recall that I have, Marshal. I got other things to occupy my thoughts. Like trying to get together enough money to go back to my people. What to do with those names? Here they are, ma'am. Oh. I'd admire to help you, Miss Henry. I'll do it. That's a fine horse, Ellen. A real fine horse. Shot all the way around. Come on, boy. That was Ethan's way. This your horse or uh, Luther's? Mine. Yeah. What? That was Luther, Mr. Dillon, and he took your horse. Yeah. Will I make a run after him, sir? Not when he's wild, Chester. I don't want you shot or him either. I just want to talk to him. Allie just comes and goes, huh, Ellen? Believe what you want, Marshal. I didn't know he was around. Like I said, I never know. Quit caring. Don't worry, Marshal. Luther will get his. He's had it coming to him for a long time. Well, I guess we ride back double, Chester. Yes, sir, we sure do. Sure cut out quick, Mr. Dillon. Maybe he did run those cattle off Carn's place last night. Maybe. 
He's running away from something. Wonder where he'll hide. Everybody around here knows your horse. Oh, he's made a lot of mistakes. He'll make more. Nothing says he's going to turn bright all of a sudden. You're not worried about your horse then, Mr. Dillon? I don't think so, Chester. What kind of a woman is that, Mr. Dillon? Ellen? Yes, sir. I don't know. I'm not much of a hand to understand women, Chester, any woman. I don't know. You think she knew Luther was home all along? Maybe. I just don't understand it, Mr. Dillon. It's not right somehow, a woman not caring about her own son. You hear her? She said right out, I quit caring. It just don't seem right. might close in here. I believe I'll leave them back windows up a spell, Mr. Dillon. I think I'll go up to Emil's blacksmith shop, Chester, and see if he has a horse to spare. All right, sir. Uh, there's some paperwork to catch up on if you get the time. Yes, sir. Of course, you'll want to write that place in Chicago about your underwear, the first thing. <laughs> yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. <laughs> I'll be back, Chester. Well, I may not need that horse after all. How's that, Mr. Dillon? Ellen Henry's riding up the street, leading my horse. Well, bless my soul, it sure is. There's something thrown across her saddle. Mr. Dillon, it looks like... Wait here, Chester. I brought your horse back, Marshal. He's been run hard. He looks all right. You, uh... You found Luther, did you? He's dead. You found him dead? He had it coming a long time. Here, I'll lift him down. Chester! Easy. Easy, Daryl. Mm. Yes, Mr. Dillon? Uh, Chester, take the body up to docks, will you? Yes, sir. <coughs> Miss Henry, I, I'm real sorry. I'll be going now, Marshal. Well, I'll take my horse then, Ellen. You, uh, you got any plans for burying Luther? Put him in any ground you like, only don't tell me where it is or when you do it. You know how he died, Ellen? He was shot. Look, it's near dark, Ellen. You could put up in town for the night if uh, you'd... Don't put him near Ethan, Marshal. I wouldn't want that. Come on! Doc's working on Luther now, Mr. Dillon. He's just plumb full of holes. Yeah, I know. Poor Miss Henry. 
Even though she don't act like it, I just know she feels terrible. Yeah, she's grieving her heart on. Where are you going, Mr. Dillon? I don't think I express my sympathy to poor Miss Henry. Proper. I followed Ellen Henry West toward her homestead. The sun was down now, but I could see her ahead riding hard. There were clouds to the south and the smell of rain on the easy wind that blew in little circles around me. Ellen bore west, and I lost her past a clump of cottonwoods near Carnes' place, so I rode harder. And when I came even with the trees, there was just enough sun ray left to see her head south toward the dark clouds. She wasn't going home. It was dark now. I couldn't see anything. The storm clouds stretched black from the south and fastened over half the sky. I rode hard against them till I saw the flicker of lantern shine ahead. It was Cass Stetter's place. I left my horse out away from the house and walked in as softly as I could. Cass and Ellen were having their talk in a cattle shed near the You've house. You've trusted me before about the money, Ellen. What's the rush this time? My work's done, Cass. It was done last night when Luther and me drove them last few from Carnes' place over here. I want my share and Luther's. Him not cold dead yet, you want a share. Ain't a mother entitled to whatever her son leaves? Mother? You never had no mother feel for him and him no love for you either. Huh. Ain't you the one to talk about love, though. It takes courage to love. To love with all of you. When the love goes, they take it and bury it in the ground. There's nothing left but hate. I wouldn't kill my own kin. You wouldn't be that honest. You won't even steal cattle yourself. You'll buy it off of them as has the courage to ride in and rustle it. Yeah, how'd it feel, killing your own, Ellen? Like it'll feel killing you, Cass. If you don't give me the money here and now, like nothing at all. Luther's dead and gone because he tipped his hand, showed his face around Karn's place, talked big in the saloons. He was no use. No use at all. There's no woman in you at all. I've been dead five years. And your time's running short, too, Cass. I'm in a hurry. Too late to hurry, Ellen. What's he? Too late to move for God and so. Well, I'm sure glad to see you, Marshal. How are you, Cass? Oh, I sure am. I guess I called a trick on Luther, all right, didn't I? Yeah, you were a big help. You and Luther stole the cattle, Ellen, and brought them to Cass for pay, is that it? Only sometimes, like now, we didn't get paid. Don't believe her, Marshal. You wouldn't take the word of one as murders your own son, would you? I don't have to, Cass. Carnes' brand won't be hard to find on any cattle you got here. Cass was just slow to move him on, Marshal. If he'd have gone on toward Abilene with him last night like we planned... You're lying, Helen Henry, you're lying! Now get your horses. Both of you. Wait... Well, why are you taking me, Marshal? 
Well, there's some kind of a law, Cass, about buying and transporting stolen cattle. Yeah, Marshal knows his law, Cass. You, you know what she did to Luther, don't you, Marshal? Yeah, I know. Now, come on. You'd like it better, wouldn't you, Marshal? If one of us made a move so you could use your gun. I said, come on, Ella. I think I'd like it better if you used your gun, Marshal. I ain't going to get back east now anyway. You'd be taking a coward's way out, Ellen, if you made me kill you. Ah. <laughs> I said, get your horse, Cass. <laughs> now make your choice, Ellen. But I don't think Ethan would think much of you. All right, Marshal. I'll go. But mind what I said. Don't put Luther near Ethan. They wasn't the same kind. Gunsmoke, transcribed under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Kathleen Height, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Jeanette Nolan, Sam Edwards, John Daner, Harry Bartell, and Herb Vigran. Parley Bear is Chester. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. This coming Monday evening, hear Richard Widmark as one of the desperate Spencer brothers riding against time and death in a suspense drama well calculated to keep your interest high. Also Monday night, you'll want to hear CBS Radio's Lux Radio Theater starring Joan Fontaine and Joseph Cotton in the strange drama September Affair. Remember, both this Monday night on most of these same CBS Radio stations. Suspense and Lux Radio Theater. This is Roy Rowan speaking. America now listens to 105 million radio sets and listens most to the CBS Radio Network. told you you would fall in love with Ellen Henry. And uh, how about that son Luther, huh? Boy. I love those heart, heartwarming uh, episodes of Gunsmoke that just make you feel good all over.
More gun smoke coming up next week. All right, well, we have run the clock out, folks. It is time to pick up all the shows and place them back in the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. We'll be back in uh, two weeks. Do it all over again. In the meantime, that's all there is. There ain't no more. This is Bob Bro, though. I sure am glad you stopped by and visited with us for a couple of hours. I hope we kept you entertained. And I hope you like the selection of shows that we made. All right, everybody. I will see you next time. This is Bob Bro. So glad you stopped by. And I'm so glad you met me. Thank you.